When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Most of us know the acronym PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. We understand the harm it can have on mental health. We see the toll it takes on veterans' lives. But this isn't a modern phenomenon. Today, we're talking about George Washington and the trauma that he experienced during the French and Indian War with Daniel Cross. This is Too Complicated for History. Today, we're joined by Daniel Cross, a living historian and first-person interpreter who portrays George Washington at a number of places, including for us, for our docuseries that Lynn and I made. (laughs) Um, He's worked at museums since he was a kid for the past 25 years, and he has a master's degree in biblical studies. We're really happy to have him to talk about George Washington and post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's a lot of fun. I'm glad to be here. So glad to have you. Thank you. So, uh, Lynn, do you want to ask the the, the, the elephant in the room uh, first? <laughs> what on earth brought you to researching this topic, Dan? <laughs> Me? Uh, oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, yes, that is version. a good question. It's a good question. Yeah, that's good. Um, it's kind of like a, it's it's a weird thing. So, so I spent a lot of time recently since picking up the George Washington thing. I focus mostly on like the younger days. So what most Americans aren't familiar with as much. So what we would call the Seven Years' War, most folks know it as the French and Indian War. So basically like 1754 to 1758, you know, 20 years before the American Revolution, well before there's really any tension on the same level that we know between Great Britain and stuff. And so as I was going through... Um, his younger days, I was kind of focusing on what is going to create Washington, who we are more familiar with now, you know, kind of how, how did the man get made basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I was going through it and reading his letters, which is where I spent 95% of my time. um, And there's a lot of them. um, I just kept coming over and over just how, um, how intense that conflict was and how personal and how kind of horrific. And some of these instances that we just aren't as familiar with, um, and so it kind of started to get me thinking like, okay, so there's this horrible war that happens and he's, you know, 22 when it starts, he's 26 when he resigns his commission and stops fighting in it. That's a pretty formative time. So basically like what, 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 what impact would this have had on him moving forward? Um, beyond just the politics or the soldiering or the position, what, what kind of mental connections did this have? Did it have any, you know, are, is there nothing? Is it completely, is he completely untouched by anything that he saw or did, which is probably pretty ridiculous to think about. So that's sure. kind of what drew me into it. It's like, okay, what, what was the human cost, right? What's the human um, impact on this guy that we know so much about, but yet so many people know so little about it at the same time. What's that personal side? Yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of what in, in, inspired it really. If you don't mind for some of our listeners, can you give us uh, just a little overview of the French and Indian War and sort of George Washington's part in it? Because I think the things that I always hear, one, he started a world war, the Seven (laughs) Years' War, and that there's the quote about the the whistles of the bullets and there was something charming in the sound. And mm-hmm. if that's all you hear, you think he's this young guy who's like, yeah, war, right. you know, trying to get a name for himself. And obviously you're going in a very different direction. Yeah. So, so, so all that's true. All those things happen. You know, the French, yeah, I'll, I'll start at the beginning, right? So there's this place <laughs> called the Ohio Valley in the 18th century. That's very close to, it's the exact same place the Ohio is now. Um, and effectively it's stuck between world powers. So you've got the French on one side, you have the English on the other and the colonists, the English colonists, 
French colonists. You have the Iroquois Confederacy involved in the whole thing. Um, you have local native peoples living in the area, um, Mingo, Shawnee, Delaware, and others. Um, and so there's basically this locus of five or six different groups all kind of coming together at the same time. And basically France claims the Ohio, England claims it, the Iroquois say they've conquered it before, they have the right to do with it what they see fit. They enter into treaties with the English, blah, blah, blah. So basically they're fighting over who gets this, pl- this piece of property. Um, Washington in 1753 is sent out by the governor of Virginia, um, Robert Dinwiddie, basically, hey, French, get out. France, of course, politely say no. Um, and uh, then this were conflict they polite? starts. They, well, I mean, they were nice to him, sort of. As polite I, as I don't know. The they give French him, can they, possibly be. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, hey, I, I will make no commentary on such things. Um, there was lots of wine involved. There was lots of food involved and lots of like trying to pull away Washington's allies from him and like get them back to the French. It's very complicated. Um, so basically in 1754, a bunch of English um, folks head out that direction. I say English, British folks head that way. Um, they're trying to create a regiment to defend the Ohio. Um, their English is Indian allies in the area. Um, folks like, um, they refer to him as the half King, but his name is uh, Tanagrison or Tenacherison, depending on how you pronounce it. Another fellow named Monica Tuca, also known as Skarude. They're leaders of the various Indian peoples in the area. Um, and so they're very concerned about this. The short version is, this is so long. It could be such, such a long concept. The short version is, um, <laughs> Washington gets out there. He's supporting a group that's already there. They're building a fort. The French show up, not Washington, this other group. The French show up. They say, if you don't leave, we'll kill all of you. They leave. The French severely outnumber them. The half king is incensed at this. Earlier the year, he's threatened by another French guy that if he doesn't come back to the France's side, that he and his family will be killed, as will the English. Um, so there's this huge tension brewing in this area. Um that just kind of comes to a head when this young guy shows up. So he's dealing there. He's dealing with his his native allies. They're dealing with him. They say, come help us. They go and attack a small uh, French contingent, ambushing them because they think this French guy named La Force is present. Um, they find out that he is present, but it's a different French party that has a different purpose of being there, supposedly. So basically, Washington fires the first shots in this conflict. The French use this basically ambush, which is flat out what it is, um, to justify the war in 1756, two years later. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of Washington's initial conflict. That's where he does the whole, I heard the musket balls whistle uh, and there was something charming in the sound, right? This young kid, um, 22. A couple months later, you probably may have heard of this, Fort Necessity happens. And if the name tells you anything, it probably should. It's not Fort well planned out. Um, <laughs> it's it's really a, a emergency depot, basically. And things mm-hmm. things just completely go wrong. They have a choice. Do we, re- do we retreat? Do we stay where we are? If we retreat, we get attacked in the woods by a far superior force. If we stay where we are, hoping for reinforcements, maybe we hold out. We probably don't. But it's kind of this last stand, like, we're going to fight for king and country mentality. Washington says, like, we decided to sell our lives dearly to the man. Um, they fight for <laughs> six hours through a rainstorm. No one can get the upper hand. They eventually surrender. The French are involved, blah, blah, blah. So that's how it all kind of gets kicked off. Um, mm-hmm. The French accuse Washington of assassinating the French ambassador. Right. He signs the documents not knowing what's in it, he says. Um, and that's kind of the initial conflict. A year later, England's trying to control the Ohio again. They send a guy named General Braddock out there. Washington is part of that process. He's mm-hmm. not military. He's a volunteer um, on General Braddock's family. Braddock's defeat goes horribly. They lose hundreds and hundreds of men in the field, defeated by a smaller force. And that's basically kind of the end of open fighting for a while. Like when I say open fighting, I mean pitched battles in this particular theater of war. The year later, 1756, war is officially declared. And what started as this little tiny skirmish turns into a massive global fight. Like there's fighting in Europe, there's fighting in um, in India, there's fighting in the Pacific, there's fighting in South America, the, the Caribbean, on the high seas, in North America. It is everywhere. Prussia is involved, Austria, Russia, oh, um, the Mughal Empire in India is involved at one point in time. You know, France is fighting. When you look at the backcountry people, the native nations that are involved, you've got, you know, the, the Iroquois are sort of neutral, sort of kind of not really. So the Seneca are involved. The Oneida are, on, are involved, the Mohawk, Wyandotte, Tuscarora, Miami, Delaware, you know, um, Shawnee are involved, Cherokee of various groups, Catawba Creek in Virginia, the Nottoway. Everybody's fighting everybody and changing mm-hmm. sides and back and forth. And that's basically the next three years of the conflict that Washington's involved in. He's defending the backcountry, trying to protect Virginia, failing to do so. No food, no resources, no supply, poor retention in the military, blah, blah, blah. It's just a mess. Um, and that's kind of really the Virginia conflict until they take 
what becomes where Pittsburgh now is, which mm-hmm. was then Fort Duquesne, becomes Fort Pitt. They finally take it in 1758. Washington's involved in that. And once they take it, it's kind of like the raids are stopping in the backcountry. My job is done. I'm sick. I want to do other things. And he resigns and doesn't hold military commission for almost 20 years. Oh, wow. And then the war goes on for almost five more years. The war's not officially over until 1763, but most of the fighting is in the North America area is done by the end of 59 into 60. Um, and then it turns into other conflicts. There's a Cherokee Anglo war. There's a war with Pontiac in the North and a bunch of other different groups. So it gets, it's just a mess. Basically it's everybody fighting everybody. It's kind of, is that a good short summary of I think the that's Virginia great. I mean, it all starts with, with a young George Washington in the woods and yeah. from there, poof, everywhere. Uh-huh. Just for those, <laughs> that's exactly for those listening, did you get all that? Just, yeah. you know, just pause, rewind a little bit and go through it again if you need to. <laughs> and play it back at half speed and then you'll get it right. all. Like, right. <laughs> you said but quick, yeah. so I got through it quick. No, we got what we asked for. <laughs> it's incredibly... Yeah. It, probably but, probably but, more than you wanted. But the point, point, the point being is that it's incredibly, you know, complex conflict, huge ramifications, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. young and experienced huge. guy. You said like, I mean, it, even the way you delivered it points to how complex it really is. If you want to have any oh, kind yeah. of understanding of this, you got to come at it from a bunch of different angles. And then yeah. you've got the, well, who is the most important dude in America's founding spending his first, basically what would be his first years out of college? That's how we can yeah. think about like how old mm-hmm. he is. Yeah. Right? He just graduated college. Like that's how young the kid is. Mm-hmm. Not surprised supposed to being in charge of people really at the time in a role of huge responsibility, no experience. And like you said, like no, 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 very little support and unsuccessful. Like, I think that's a super important thing for that, that we've uh, like, at least so for my first foray into Washington was the docuseries. Like I didn't really, you know, I haven't studied him much, but the, his early failures Mm -hmm. were a really enlightening and sort of like eye-opening thing. It's like, oh, this guy spent his twenties sort of not screwing up, but failing at everything that he had tried Mm -hmm. to set out to do. Yeah. Um, And he flat out says it like in in letters from that period in like 57 and 58, he flat out says, look, I have made mistakes. I am, I am not without fault. I have stumbled. Other people would do a better job, but I've been given this job and I'm going to do the best I possibly can at it basically. Um, So he, he's even self-aware of like, yeah, I know it's not perfect, but, what else? There's one time he tells a guy, he's like, I have no experience with this. And you're men of government who've been doing it for years and you don't know what you're doing. So why would you expect me to know what I'm doing? It's, it's paraphrased, but that's basically what he <laughs> right. says. And it's like, whoa, okay, calm down, George. Fair point. Um, but it's, yeah, you're right. I mean, he, he doesn't know. He has no military training. He has no military experience. His only really benefit is that he's been in the backcountry as a surf, as a surveyor. So he's right. been in the area before. He's dealt with some of the native people. And that's basically it. Yeah, and if I'm remembering correctly, he he'd been there. He was of high enough status to be an envoy representing for Virginia, yeah. but yeah. No, but he was like the lowest guy on the totem pole. Like he was oh, just sure. enough, just high enough to be like an acceptable envoy, but yeah. no no one higher than him wanted to do it. Like, it has more it to do sort of, with it has more to do with his friends really yeah. than anything else. You know, his brother, his connections. People kind of put him in the right place at the right time, and they're like, "Oh, you're mildly dispensable. You go do this." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, some he's gangly, six foot four. You know, yeah, like, yeah. you know, early twenties. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. You survive smallpox, you'll be fine. It's great. You know, just go. It's good. <laughs> no, it'll be fun. Yeah. They said. He's not threatening anyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then he almost drowns in a river. So it's great. You know, like it's just it's one thing after another. I just had a thought. You know what else should have been included in the Bill of Rights? An ad break. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So as far as the, uh, in, when you're getting to like the going from, so that was a macro overview of yeah. everything that, that we talked about. The uh, getting into the micro, like like that example of what you just said, he almost drowns in a river. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can you explain, Lynn, what, what is it called when you're um, looking at history from that perspective, like from the bottom up versus the top down? Is there a specific we, we term for it? We call it bottom up. 
history. Bottom up. Oh, there you go. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Sometimes See, things don't don't have jargon. There's nothing associated fancier with them. than I can think <laughs> we're of. Very, we're very creative in the historic world with our names. Like we're like, oh, exactly. what should, what would this be called? Oh, I know. Bottom up history. What does it do? Um, well, you look from the bottom up. Oh, and you feel very wise. Mm, that's a tough one. Mm. <laughs> but it's an interesting question because, like, at this point, he's just a guy. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. like, the, looking at him is like looking at any number of other folks, like that, you know, like, I, I never knew that he drowned in a river. Yeah. Uh, almost. Almost. Did. almost. Well, he didn't, didn't, didn't almost, actually. Almost, <laughs> almost drowned. We don't, we don't want any fake George Washington stories. He drowned and he was replaced by someone who can't. No, no, no. It's like, yeah. Yeah. No. Paul McCartney is dead. <laughs> <laughs> he was replaced in the 60s replaced. by George Washington. Yeah. By George by Washington. By George Washington. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who have been frozen in a river for the last two hundred years? That's no, right. Don't go it's it's a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, so what was so you it, as far as looking at that, you're looking at these primary sources where mm-hmm. people are. Who are they when you look at Washington's letters and the and the soldiers? Who are they writing to? Mm-hmm. Like what's what's that experience? Because Lynn, you have some experience of looking reading people's mail as well. Um, That's what I do for a living. I continue yeah. to do that for a living, actually. Famous people's mails. I'm not going around going into people's mailboxes. I just want to say. <laughs> Thank you for the They're clarification. Long, long dead also. It's not just <laughs> the neighbors famous run people. to their mailbox. Right. Here, like and it's all public information. It's fine. <laughs> um, um, so, what, so, so yeah. So who are these letters to? Like what kind of letters is he writing? Or him as well as the other soldiers? Are they writing to family members? Are they writing to like their commanding officers that are mm-hmm. stationed far away? What kind of I mean, correspondence are you talking about? All the above, really. So, you know, when you look at Washington's letters, especially in this period, um, a lot of the things that we're seeing as a younger man is you're seeing military documentation. So he's clearly saving things or things are being saved oftentimes by other people um, to keep an eye on what's going on. So, for example, uh, the governor who's kind of his not kind of, he's flat out his authority figure effectively throughout this entire period, Robert Dinwiddie. So we have many of his papers. So a lot of these letters that Washington's writing are being found in those papers. Um, So he's writing to superior officers, guys like, you know, Dinwiddie, a guy named Stanwicks, um, Braddock at various points in times and other individuals. He's writing, Washington's writing to officers who are answering to him. Um, So men that are under his authority, whether they be, you know, lieutenant colonel, whether they be major or captain, ensign, sometimes even lower rank than that. That's rarer. Um, he's writing to men of men of government, um, a guy named John Robinson, who's kind of the head of the House of Burgesses at the time, which is the representative government in Virginia. Um, so he's writing to him. You get parallel letters, though. So you get like him writing to the governor, one thing, and then he sends the same letter with notes added to it to John Robinson. So you, like you get his kind of more official thought to the governor. And then when he's not happy with the governor's responses or what's happening, he'll write John Robinson. You can like, oh, there's more personal information in this. So like you get bits and pieces of both. Um, He's writing. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. So he'll be like, you'll see those two in parallel. And it's like, he's not happy with what's going on (laughs) with the governor. So he's going to write to the speaker of the house and be like, okay, dude, seriously, what the heck? You know, it's, you get this kind of feeling 23 year old guy, right? He's trying to figure it out. Um, You get letters to friends of his personal friends, um, you get letters to, you know, other people who served with him in other places. So he writes to British officers like Robert Orm, um, and other people who he fought with at Braddock's defeat. He writes to people he sees when he goes up to New York and visits like on the way to go speak to a military authority briefly. So it's, I mean, everything and every, everything, anything and everything you've described basically are what, what we're dealing with. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of stuff. And I think part of the reason we actually have so much of his personal thoughts in this period, bits and pieces, moments here and there, um, is two things. One, um, he's writing to a lot of people and we have that military documentation and he's very careful to, he's careful or other people are careful to keep official papers. And so when there's little personal moments in those papers, they kind of stand out. And the other thing is, um, he's young, he hasn't learned to control himself as much. And he's much freer in his writing in these documents than he will be even 10 years later. So two things kind of kind of play into that. That's interesting because when I was working on his Barbados diary, mm-hmm. it seemed like he was very hesitant to put any of his personal, even opinions. He goes yeah. to see a play and he says, it was said the character was acted well. Well, what do you say <laughs> it was said? Right. So I don't know. Do, do we know of any... Um, perhaps writings, at least in your time period, where maybe he wrote something he shouldn't have and then got 
caught or someone else read it. And mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering where he sort of learned this lesson. Of um, control. Clearly he was hesitant, but then, you know, as you said, he kind of gets more and more as he gets older. Is that something that just comes with maturity? Or did I, I th- he get caught? <laughs> I think it's maturity. I think it's a okay. combination. I think, well, I think it's both. I think it's learning from mistakes. Like we talked about earlier, he, he makes mistakes and stumbles over things and says things he shouldn't say and does things he shouldn't do. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier the thing about like, you know, I'm young and inexperienced and you, I don't know what I'm doing. And you knew this when you gave me the post, but you're men of government right. and you don't know what you're doing. He wrote that to the governor of Virginia. Oh, <laughs> right. You don't do that ever <laughs> yeah. at all. Right. So like uh, it's those it's those kinds of moments where you can see him. It's 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 almost like and you talked about it, he's very methodical and he always is. Mm-hmm. He's very methodical and very reasoned. Um, kind of a fun example of did he write things and get in trouble for it? Mm-hmm. There's after the Fort Necessity debacle happens in 54 and 55. Um, I forget when it is. So forgive me. Look it up yourselves. That's the best part about this. Don't just take my word for it. Go find these things. They're all available online and other places. Um, basically, the French publish his, I'm doing air quotes here, journal from that right. campaign. And he it shows up and then eventually gets translated and it gets here. And he basically says, I don't remember half of this. Now, the irony is how much of it does he not remember what's due? So it's kind of this weird, like, okay, there's things that he says that are invented, but when you look at the writing, it kind of matches what he says in other places. And it's nothing really right. particularly strange or it's, it's almost like the French publisher, like, ah, gotcha. Cause they're going to use this as the Cassius Belli, their reason for starting the war. But there's sure. nothing really particularly damning in it. Mm-hmm. That, mo- I mean, there's a couple moments here and there you're like, ah, okay, maybe there were some things inflected and added there. Um, but he's very much like, I don't remember pieces. Like I didn't keep a diary. I kept like notations of where I was and who I said things to and what people said stuff. And you look at it and you're like, it kind of reads like that, maybe with some narrative links put together. So that's an example of kind of that. Oh, I wrote something down and it turned into a problem for us. Um, not quite the same. Yeah. I don't remember writing that. Um, uh, a funny, funny thing that ties to it is he actually writes to a friend of his uh, who writes him asking him a question about something that Washington had written him before if this in the period. And Washington basically is like, I don't remember. I don't keep copies of letters to my friends. So I'm not sure what you're talking about. And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean you don't remember? Um, but you do see this kind of like this. And this is my interpretation of it. So take it with a grain of salt. What seems to happen is Washington gets so... Um, caught up in some of these intense things that are happening that his what i like to say his justice gene kind of kicks into gear and it overrides his don't say this now right kind of gene in a sense and then you see him kind of go oh crap i shouldn't have said that um and it doesn't it isn't just like going after people sometimes it's also sometimes like emotional pieces um or like i feel frustrated by this or this is horrible what's happened and you get this moment of like is that a Okay, is that a personal thought or is that for effect? And, but then it happens more consistently. You're like, okay, no, it seems to be a personal thought as opposed to for effect. Anyway, that's kind of what I'd say. That, that uh, makes sense. I mean, there is at least, if you're thinking about the difference between Lynn, you were talking about how he is uh, more reserved in the Barbados diary versus these mm-hmm. letters later on, it is a very different environment during right. the war Different when he's coming, yeah. like, like it's much most yeah. much more emotionally charged right. yeah um i think that the circuit the, the consequences of this of the things are much higher so they probably feel more important yeah right. um, the stakes are higher yeah and yeah and also i this is an interesting thought and i, I wonder if any of these letters there's uh exemplify this is did he so he's got a, a reputation for being very measured, but also being a little bit of a hothead when he does <laughs> like flip, like when he sees yeah. red, like he yeah. has a temper when it happens, but is like incredibly good at holding that in for the most part. Right. Do, is that, does that, uh, I know that that's said of him later, like during the, during the revolutionary war. Is there anything that uh, shows that example, like uh, is a good example of that for the seven years war as well? Or is, is that something that develops over time when he gets good at bottling it up? Then yeah, it erupts yeah, yeah, more. Yeah. And it kind of pops out more often. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Or at least in more spectacular fashion. <laughs> it's one of those, it's one of those ones that's hard to say. Like I, I think the answer is yes. I think there's more examples of it. Um, it's weird because unlike the revolution, 
where we have a bit more eyewitness accounts of people talking about things that have happened around him. We don't have as many eyewitness visuals of what Washington's doing in these periods from as many people. Um, and it's not so much temper in this case. It it feels to me at times that he's a very emotionally driven person. What young person isn't, right? Um, there's a, a letter that he writes in... Um, the letters from Dinwiddie in 1752 to the governor in 1756. And it's like, it's after a period of just real, just destruction. And they're every, it's like the first kind of six to eight months he's been in official command of defending all of Virginia's backcountry. And it is not going well. There's no food. There's no resources. There's no ammunition. Desertion is high. People are absolutely panicked and terrorized. Um, and, you know, he talks about in the early part of the letter, he gives all of these lists of things that are going on. You know, it's, it's not an hour or even a minute has passed where there's new fresh alarms and melancholy accounts of what's going on. Um, he flips down and he's like, three families were murdered night before last at a distance of less than 12 miles from where we're at. You know, in an earlier letter, he says to Dinwiddie that basically there's so much destruction that's happening and and that it has driven him, the lamentations of women coming and like hoping to find their family or their, you know, they've been displaced and the, the, the lamentations of the men have driven Washington to such deadly sorrow that if he knew his own mind, basically he would offer himself as a sacrifice to the enemy if it would just contribute to the people's mm. ease. And that's wow. kind of like this little click moment, you know, because before that, in the letters before it, he's kind of complaining about, we don't have enough resources, what's going on, and I, I, how dare this not happen? And then it's, to me, it feels like it just completely hits the fan, and it's just, it is chaos, and there's there's one reference about, he sends, he tells people, go out, and, you know, there's there's been a family that was killed, go, and for the love of God, bury them. They've been sitting out there for like a week now, and because there's no one to go put them to rest, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it this emotion pops out and it, it's is it anger is it just emotion it's probably all of the above and so you get this flashpoint of um frustration pain all these pieces that comes out and then it kind of you see it then go back to and now let me run through a list of things that are going on you know we have to do the french the militia so you even in the letter you get this moment of this this thing really just sets him off and then he kind of collects himself and then he finishes and you know this many peeps we need this much we need this we need this this needs to be taken care of i'll be down here next month and blah blah blah. and so you get that similar concept so i think it's a thing that happens his entire life Mm. i think it happens more often when he's younger but he you know as time goes on he develops that control that letter is a great stepping point to to you know the the area of your of your study uh, in 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 you know, in terms of PTSD and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I just think generally speaking, and this is sort of a general idea, when you're reading about history, oftentimes the actual, outside of like war, war, like the actual violence of just what was occurring, even in when in descriptions of war, is oftentimes sort of brushed over, very, yeah. very smooth. Um, Dan Carlin, the, the history podcaster, um, mm-hmm. has a great example of this. And when you're reading in, throughout history and you see someone, oh, he took his wife as his own. Right, if people are constantly like taking these women as their wives, the, the term "wife" there is a generous term, right? Yeah. What we're talking about right. is a violent, non-consensual, mm-hmm. basically relationship taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it's like it's a, a lot of violence, just sort of like just glossed over in terms of just oh, hey, this is we're calling it their wives. So like this is an interesting. You don't get the level of depth that you're talking about. Even the family's being murdered. The word yeah. murder probably yeah. doesn't pop up in a bunch of history books describing yeah. Washington's experience on uh, during the Seven Years' War. Right. Um, but when you look at it at that lens, for, like at this micro level, yeah. um, you get to see the impacts that it has on their psyche, yeah. which is here, exactly what you me, discovered, right? Let me read that whole sentence just so you hear the whole thing. This, sure, this, this sure. is just one sentence to highlight your point because you're nailing it on the head. Three families were murdered the night before last at the distance of less than 12 miles from this place. And every day we have accounts of such cruelties and barbarities as are shocking to human nature, nor is it possible to conceive the situation and danger of this miserable county. Wow. Boom. Right there. You know, um, you're right. Like we, we, we wrong word, but best thing I can come up with, we kind of sterilize history in our thinking. You know, we, mm-hmm. we distance ourselves from it and we forget these are people. These are human beings. And, and, and you can't gloss over this fact that there were more people who fled the backcountry in this period than were actually killed. Let's, let's put that in perspective, right? So it's not like tens of thousands of people are being killed. 
But thousands of families fled the backcountry because neighbors were being killed or some people being abducted. And this goes both ways. You know, they're, they're fighting and killing on families on both sides of this conflict. Let's not pretend like it's not. But that fear is just as pervasive as the actual death itself of just people emptying themselves. And we, we forget that. We, we, we read about the revolution, the seven years of war, blah, blah, blah. And we kind of just, oh yeah, the fight happened and we won at Yorktown and it was great. Ah, you know, or, oh, the defeat at Braddock's, you know, defeat was horrible and there were 400 men killed. And it's like, yeah, read these letters and they'll describe to you how they were killed, right? right. It's like, oof, okay, these are people. They're just like us. Human nature hasn't changed that much, you know? Conflict happens today. And the same things that our people are experiencing today are the exact same kinds of emotional turmoil and hardship that they're experiencing in the 18th century. And if you look at these letters and you look at them closely, it's all there. You can find it. I think another big misconception is that because people tended to die, but children died frequently. Yeah. Death was very present in yep. in George Washington's time period. So they had a different perhaps relationship with it. They didn't, you know, hide it and run away from it as we tend to do in modern day. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it didn't bother them. That doesn't mean that they were okay with it. And I think we tend to think because it was more present that they were used to it or something to that effect. Yeah. And I think that's clearly what you're saying is that that's just a misconception. Yeah, it's it's funny that you point that out, Lynn, because I just realized that there's a, 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 a like a cognitive dissonance there in thinking of it as simultaneously a more like gentlemanly time, like war was mm-hmm. considered more gentlemanly, but also more barbaric. Like they're used to it; it's fine. Like that just happened all the time. Right. Yeah. It's a, both of those things yeah. are ha- like it's like those thoughts happen simultaneously in order to explain away like them actually experiencing kind of the trauma of of, mm-hmm. of, of what life would have been like back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't yeah. imagine that just because you've lost two of your babies that uh, it, it's no big deal anymore. Like third one, uh, that that's fine. It doesn't mean that it's it feels right. any different <laughs> right. to the parents because right. it's more present. Yeah. And, but then also like it's more familiar, mm-hmm. but then people find ways like, like you know, humans, humans, we're, our brains are resilient. So you start right. calling the kid little stranger as opposed to naming them right off the bat. Right. Because you don't mm-hmm. know how long. Right. So it's not like you're OK with the third child maybe dying, but you find emotionally a workaround to distance right. yourself from that pain that's still very real you know mm-hmm. it's it's exactly yeah exactly so sorry for the interruption but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors so so what are some examples of some of that like as you're when you're peering into these letters and mm-hmm. things of washington as well as also like you know the officers and soldiers that were around him during this conflict what are yeah. some examples of that sort of trauma that you're able to see in the in the letters. Yeah, well, I think the, the one we mentioned earlier is a kind of like a good indication, a kind of a, a good starting point with Washington talking about like, you know, if I could die on their behalf, I'd be happy, you know, I'd, I'd do it willingly, right? And so there's a couple letters that are around that are very similar to that. Um, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of like combing through um, a haystack looking for a needle, to use the old adage, because mm. the language for what we understand today doesn't exist in the period. So our concept, you know, we know PTSD is a very common term right now. And it, it hasn't been that common of a term for a very long time. It's still a relatively recent terminology in the last, you know, 60, 70 years um, ballpark, right? But before that, you know, you've probably heard World War I, shell shock, right? You know, you, before that in, civil, in the Civil War, you, soldier's heart, right? These kinds of mm-hmm. terminologies. In the 18th century, we don't see that language. It's just not there. Um, and so... You, know, you start seeing it in the Napoleonic time period a little bit with Napoleon Surgeon General referencing um, the impact on soldiers and kind of this 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 distant, far off thought where they want to go home and like loud noises startle them and they seem to be just staring off into the distance. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Um, mm-hmm. We don't have that language in um, the period. So here's a story of a guy. Um, and you have to take some of the story with a grain of salt because it's it's from a later document that someone wrote down based off of his his tell someone telling them who spoke with him when he was alive, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a couple people removed. So grains of salt, some of this. Um, but there's a through line through it. So there's this guy named Robert Stobo, who is a captain in Washington, uh, his first initial conflict at Fort Necessity. He's Scottish. Um, he comes over, he's involved in conflict, he's a captain. At the conclusion of Fort Necessity, um, he volunteers to be a hostage of the French to be exchanged for the prisoners Washington took at Fort Necessity uh, at the small skirmish I told you before. Sorry. And basically he goes to Fort Duquesne. He's hanging out. 
you know, that's kind of, they're going to be exchanged eventually. He's never exchanged because a bunch of things happen. You know, one thing is a bunch of, there's, there's question about whether the terms of the surrender are kept, blah, 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 all these things happen. Um, so he's never exchanged at that point. And basically at that point, he decides, well, some of my men were captured. The terms of my surrender were broken. Therefore, I am not bound by um, the articles of war, basically, because I'm no longer being treated as a hostage. I've been, I can, I can act as an operative of my side, basically. And so he starts sending messages to the American side, like, you know, plans of the fort, you know, who, what troops are around, you know, what, Basically espionage, right? Right. He's the one who is sending information to Virginia that ends up being found in Braddock's baggage train in 1755, a plan of Fort Duquesne. It's all from him. When that battle collapses, they capture the French capture those papers and they realize this dude has basically been spying from inside our fort for the last year. Okay. So that kickstarts a whole problem. And so he's kind of the counterpart of this LaForce guy and they're kind of bouncing back and forth. And the the Virginians aren't treating this LaForce guy well. The French are like, well, we're not going to treat this guy well. So you see this kind of back and forth between these two world powers with these two men's lives, basically. You know, LaForce is in prison in Williamsburg, manacled to the floor at one point. He breaks out because he realizes he's not being held appropriately. So he escapes. He's brought back. He's chained. He's not. It's awful what happens to this guy. Um, Washington's trying to give him money to help him out at one point. It's, it's, it's interesting, just this involvement. Mm-hmm. Stobo gets up and he's up in Quebec and Montreal. He escapes multiple times. He's tried for spying, found guilty, is sentenced to death. He's not killed. He breaks out at one point and he and a handful of other people make it all the way from Canada to New York. And they describe in these memoirs some of the things that happened. I strongly encourage you to read. I, I won't go through into the details, but it's awful stuff, you know horrible things that they do just to survive. And again, grain of salt, some of it might be expanded upon for the, by, through the telling, but the core of it's there. It's awful, awful, awful things. He ends up back in Williamsburg four or five years after he's taken prisoner. Washington's involved in welcoming him to Williamsburg. They give him materials. He ends up in the British army, um, never gets above the rank of captain. He's in the ranks of the British for almost 20 years, never breaks captain. He's Scottish. He's also been based in the United States. He never can break out of that line. George Washington writes to him in the early 1770s saying, hey, um, land bounties, are you interested? I'll buy your, the land, the, which you promised to you because of your service in the war. He gets a response back and saying, oh yeah, um, he killed himself a couple, couple weeks ago. Oh my gosh. He, he shoots himself in his own barracks. Um, and when you look at that train, it's like, whoa, okay, that's surprising. He had, he had a military career. He was moving fine. He was in England, but eventually he takes his own life. Um, isolated incident, maybe, but another officer involved in the seven years of war, a guy named William Byrd, who I think probably Lynn knows, has heard the name before. Oh, yes. He also <laughs> commits suicide mm-hmm. in the middle of the revolution. And he was involved in some of the campaigns with the Cherokee and the back country. He's involved. He's got a, uh, he's got other family issues. So there's two guys right there. Um, you see alcoholism in the years afterwards, you see these kinds of pieces, um, there's a, a letter Washington writes to a friend of his who was at the Braddock campaign who lost his father and his brother at the Braddock campaign. Like they find out later, his father gets wounded. The son ran up to him. He gets shot through the head, drops into his lap. The father bleeds out, oh, holding his body. It's awful stuff. God. Right. And the person who takes him to the place is one of the guys who probably was involved in killing him. He's a Shawnee warrior who now are at peace and he takes them right to the spot. They find him. They find the body. It's, it's recorded. Washington writes to this guy named Halkett before this happens on the way to the Forbes expedition. And he writes and he basically says, this is a paraphrase. He says, look, I heard you're going to be part of this expedition. And I'm so glad we have the opportunity to go back out there and visit upon the French the same kindness they showed to us and our companions three years ago. So there's, there is a visceral feeling in these guys and you see it coming through. Um, one of his younger officers steps away from the regiment for a short time, a guy named um, Peachy. And he writes Washington. Washington writes him back. We don't have Washington's letter. I wish we did. But Peachy responds and he basically says, this is again, paraphrase. He ba- this is in 1757. Well, Washington's actually almost dying of an illness. And Peachy basically says, I didn't realize that I had a friendship in you until I left the front, the, 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 the soldiering. You know why? Because there's there's only so much familiarity a commanding officer can show to an inferior officer, right? But basically, whatever Washington wrote to him elicited this emotional response. And Peachy's like, I just, 
I had to quit the backcountry. He gets drummed out of the regiment because there's not enough um, positions. They have so few men. They don't need that many officers. Mm-hmm. And he goes through a list of people. He's like, you know, the 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 horrible death of my friend Spotswood, the untimely fate of Bullet, these two guys, one guy who just disappears in the backcountry. He goes out with the Cherokee War Party to fight the French. They get attacked. The Cherokee come back. The other soldiers come back and Spotswood just disappears. Never find his body. He's just gone. Um, bullet, same thing happens, you know? So he's like, I have these two friends of mine who just are gone and we don't know what happened. We can't find a body. We can't find, we don't even know what happened. They just disappear. And then he goes on to say, and it's just, it's, and to hear back in Williamsburg, the wagging tongues of calumnious liars who are their, their words are more effective in killing us than bullets are. And so there's just this Mm -hmm. sense of abandonment that in some of these letters that you can find. Um, so when you start going through with a fine tooth comb, not just Washington, but his other officers and other soldiers, you see this kind of through line showing up, um, uh, to use another example. Sorry, there's so many cool things, not cool, but fascinating. There's a name, man named Swallow, who's a Cherokee warrior who comes up. Um, and he's supporting the Virginians. He's angry that they're not being treated by Virginia governments properly, but he goes out and fights anyway. He gets killed. He's shot through the head. His son is killed well, mortally wounded, then dies later. And his war party is so angry at what happens that this man has been, you know, their, their leader at this point has been murdered that they fall on the French prisoners and kill a bunch of them before they can stop them because they're so incensed mm-hmm. by the the, the, the the death that's been done. So it's just, there's so much going on and, and there's so many little pieces that when you start to follow that through line through, you're like, yeah, that's combat fatigue. That's battle fatigue. That's the beginnings of anxiety disorder. That's what could turn into PTSD. It's, it's there. It's very, very clearly um, as you start looking mm. through this stuff. And it's a very long so answer, but it's all, it sounds so modern. Yeah. It sounds so modern. Everything you're saying yep. can be said yep. today. Yeah. In your work, have you found, have you found, um, uh, you know, veterans and, and, you know, active duty soldiers today in your work, have you found them connecting to this kind of material? Yeah. Cause it's either there's not, it's not readily available in any, mm-hmm sort of like widespread public forum. Like, right. like they, you know, I wouldn't, you know, if I was, uh, I didn't know that this existed before I met you. Like yeah. that, 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 that there was like, you know, oh, I can learn about th- this part of history and draw a connection mm-hmm. to it if I was someone that was going through this. So do you find people today uh, connecting with this material? Yeah. Um, I, I did a program a while back and and part of the development, I talked to a couple of guys that I know who served in various, you know, conflicts, you know, Gulf War um, and various places. And just kind of ran past some of the things that I was thinking and, and looking at. And, and some of them were like, yeah, I, know, I experienced that or I, I saw that. I, I've ex- you know, I, that, that connects to my experience. Um, and then I've seen some folks see the program. And, and my goal is, is I don't want to make, the, when I talk about this or when I present it, the goal is not to make it entertaining. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I, I want it to be honoring, but also to really confront people with the reality of the humanity and and the, the what humans are capable of, you know, in these kinds of conflicts, not to degrade, not to over embellish, but just harsh, plain, simple truth. Um, I had a guy um, I know who talked about this with me and and saw some of the performances and, and talked about the the content, and it was like, yeah, I've experienced that. You know, um, one of the uh, one of the comments that was made was looking at Washington, who clearly is showing signs of combat fatigue. It seems by the end of this this period, um, gets horribly ill, but the symptoms don't just jive with illness. There's other pieces, you know, stress and campaigns, that kind of thing. Um, and it's interesting that Washington, when this war is over, when he when, when his part is over, which is interesting, he he gets out before the war's done. Like he he quits five years before it's over, but he kind of he achieves his goal, which is making Virginia's backcountry safe for a while resigns December 31st and immediately gets into a very stable, very healthy relationship, as far as we can tell, with with Martha Custis, then Martha Washington. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is I was, I was talking about this with someone. The person I was talking to went, stability. He went from an unstable situation into a stable situation. And that stood out because they're like, that's, that's happened to me or to people that I know is I was unstable trying to hold things together. And then I stepped into a different space and I was around and surrounded by people who stood with me, who stood beside me, who understand who, and just were able to walk with me. And you see that happening with Washington. 
Um, another comment was made that you see Washington with his farming techniques. And you, I'm sure you've thought, looked at this one. He's very mm-hmm. much a control freak. Like he wants to yes. know everything that is happening and everything in its proper place. And if you don't do your job, why aren't you doing your job? Mm-hmm. And I described this to a soldier and he went, that's the mindset of an officer. If you don't, if you aren't controlling things, that's when people die. That's when things right. go wrong. That's when things fail. That's when you lose people. And so you put that on the, the war experience. He's very regimented. And when things aren't regimented, that's when people die. You know, him, other officers, et cetera. So you see all. So, yeah, the answer is yes. It's, it's clearly very close to what's actually happening for people yeah, today. It's actually funny that you say that because there was, I had a general explain to me what the, the, the concept of command and control Right, right. So you think of like command as like, oh, I'm commanding. I mean, that's not actually what it means in that context. What they mean by command is an understanding. Like, I need to have a command of what's going on, right? And that, like, it's actually him. Like, if you're looking at his library and then how he act in the field, it at when he's at Mount Vernon, Mm -hmm. that's command and control, right? Mm -hmm. He's I need to know what the techniques are. I need to know. Yeah. Not, I need to hire someone that knows. Right. I need to know what's going on. Yeah, he would say discipline. I need to implement those things. Yeah. yeah. His and, word and would be discipline. Switch right. discipline for control, and that's exactly it. Discipline. Discipline, yeah. discipline, discipline. Yeah, it's, it's, that's such an interesting um, thing that that's an officer's mindset. Because uh, that, that's something that, that the U.S. military, you know, a concept that they developed over time. Right. But, you know, it's it's the same organization that Washington was in command of when he was yeah. in. Like, it's the same institution yeah. that still exists today without without breaking, really. Yeah, no, um, you're that's, right. That's super it's the same institution. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it's also interesting, something that you said earlier, how it was like, oh, they only started recognizing the, the effects that war had on these rank-and-file soldiers, like when the Napoleonic yeah. Wars. And when, when, when armies started becoming professional, like those guys didn't go back to their farms when they were done. Like, it's like, oh, we have to be around these dudes all the time and we're trying to keep them as soldiers and pay them to be soldiers. Oh, we might be hurting these folks. Yeah. Rather than them like being, on, right. in, being enlisted, enlisted for like a year and then just going off and doing, and, you know, becoming, you know, struggling with all that stuff on their own mm-hmm. in their home far away from the military. Like, right, kind of out of sight, out of mind, right? With. Exactly. Like, that's the first time they're getting, like, they get to see all of it all of a sudden at, like, yeah. a wide, well, you know, with the rank and file, yeah. essentially, which is super yeah. interesting. This, this is a great story. Okay, so this isn't Washington. This is another founding father. You all know Patrick Henry, right? Of course. Yeah. So <laughs> his son is at the Battle of Monmouth, and there are accounts that describe um, him walking in the battlefield afterwards and seeing where some of his friends were killed and basically snapping, pulling his sword out, slashing it at grass and trees and cutting things over, weeping and wailing, falling to his knees, and then eventually being carted off the field. And that right there, boom, that's that's battle fatigue, you know, and that's in the revolution. So that's happening then. It's happening 20 years earlier, you know, right? It's there. It's interesting for myself because. I guess I always thought, well, he had that experience. So when, you know, we're starting this revolution, wouldn't he be the perfect person to lead the Continental Army? But then if I'm looking at it from his perspective, I mean, I feel like he spent all this time hopefully healing. Mm -hmm. You know, he's in a stable relationship. Right. Did he really want to? I mean, in your opinion, of course, this is, you know, your opinion. Of course, interpretation, right? We'll never know. Do you think that... You know, he really was hesitant to take on that command of the Continental Army. And do you think it ties into these experiences? I th- I think so. You know, I-, I think he expected to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that sense of obligation again. Like if they if right. the people of Virginia tell me that this is and, and also probably why did they send him? In 1775 to the second Congress, why did they send him to the first Congress? Right. They knew right. conflicts brewing, you know. Lexington and Concord had happened, right? They're like, okay, this is probably, you know, so he's there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the command of everything. I don't think he fundamentally, he flat out says, I don't, I didn't want the command. I don't think I'm equal to this task. I'll do it, but I don't think I'm equal to it. Right. Um, and there's so many layers to that. So yes, I, I do think he was hesitant to engage in conflict. I mm-hmm. think he draws a line where he's like, there's a point where we get pushed and we have to defend our rights and liberties. Right. Um, and I think an example of it is look at the guys he's he'd be fighting against. You know, the the commander of the troops in North America, British troops at that point in Boston, who he ends up staring down guns at, is a guy named General Thomas Gage. Right? Yeah. He and Washington are together on the same side 
at the Battle of Monongahela, where they lose 550 men killed, 450 men wounded in the course of three and a half hours. Like they are literally brothers in arms, not just brothers, British brothers. They are literally men who served together on the same side um, and experienced horror and all these awful things. So not only is it like the, the hesitancy of I've, I've, I've lived my life, you know, look at that. Like that's, that's, it it would be, it'd be like someone who served in the Gulf war, right. Mm -hmm. Deciding I'm going to go fight in Ukraine. 20 years, almost 30 years later, right? So Washington's military career is over almost 20 years before the American revolution starts. He's 40, he's in his forties, mid forties. He's not a young guy. So like not only that piece, but all of that emotional experiences and the horror that you see, which we don't see him write about until the 1780s, right? But he writes Mm -hmm. about them, but not till later. Um, And then add to that, the fact that he will potentially be fighting against men that he once fought alongside. So yeah, I think there is incredible hesitancy to it, you know, um, for sure. And the fact that it's a revolution and, you know, they're traitors. I mean, technically they're they're traitors and can be hanged. If If it goes wrong, they're going to come for him. Like, you know, (laughs) you know, and it also puts his family in danger. I mean, there was the concern with, you know, when Mm -hmm. Martha visits him in the winter campments Mm -hmm. that she could get kidnapped because that would be a great get for for the British army. Glad you mentioned that. Cool thing about Martha Washington, she's with him for nearly five of the eight, five of the eight year war. She's with him for five years, right? Talk about supporting him in his time of difficulty, right? So, I mean, yeah, speaking of it, she's she's awesome, yeah. by the way. Shout out, <laughs> to, awesome shout Martha out Washington. to Martha Washington while we're here. <laughs> That's interesting because that, that she was so in tune with his needs uh, yeah. during that war. Because like we, 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 you said that he's five and a half years. It's actually five, you know, total time is what he's yeah. referencing. Like yeah. we, we refer to it as like winter quarters, but that was months and months and months. Oh, months. yeah. It was yeah, not yeah. just like, hey, December and a little bit of February, January. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was no. like a big chunk of the year. Yeah. Um, but also, like, she met him when he's coming because you reference him almost dying of this disease. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, she meets him like when he is like getting brutal. Yeah. Like he, like yeah. she, like at his with all the effects of that the Seven Years' War on him, mm-hmm. wearing them like all the weight that he's lost from yeah. being sick. That's when nine she nine months of dysentery for context. Nine oh months yeah. of dysentery plus tuberculosis or pneumonia at the same time probably intermittent fever, which is malaria spiking, plus all the stress of the campaign and the different references. All, that, that, yeah, not not the kind of guy you take home, right? You know, like that's- <laughs> Yeah, I guess, I guess that may not be the first time they met, but that was like when they- Reacquainted. Like, decided the to get married. One. Yeah, the re- yeah. yeah, the important one. Like yeah. that, the, yeah, that's the guy she meets, the sick mm-hmm. one, the wounded mm-hmm. one, the, the, the yeah. like, emotionally wounded one. Yeah. But like, that's who she meets. And well, then, like, and I guess when she's going back to war, it's like, oh, I need to be- Yeah. Like, it, like him moving from an unstable situation to a stable situation, that's partly because of who she is. Yes as well as the fact that he's in a marriage. Because there are plenty of marriages, we think of them as sort of like, again, glossing over the details of them. There are plenty of tumultuous marriages. I think even contentious ones on like a person-to-person level, if you think of like Abigail and John Adams were at each other's throats a lot. Like like arguing like couples do. But Martha and George didn't have that kind of relationship. There was a much lot more support there. It's Mm -hmm. interesting that she was so in tune with that. Then you Mm -hmm. get to the war, she's right there. You know, as soon as she can, safely. Uh, Always. And we have we have references that like when she shows up, his officers are like, "Oh, thank God," because he just like he calms down. Like it's just like that, that's legit a thing, you know. Um, and and to highlight too that that relationship, you know, the year before they reacquaint in fifty eight, she loses her husband, her first husband, one of her kids, and her father in the same like six to eight month time span. So mm-hmm. she's also not unacquainted with suffering and hardship and sorrow and loss. And so you get two people who both understand that same thing and who really become like, all right, I'll be your support. You support me. I support you. And, and when you look at the relationship moving from that point forward, you see that supportive when things go wrong, you're my person. I'm with you. Like it's, it's boom, everything stops. And that's what we do. So yeah. I think it's, there's a, there's a term, this is a little bit modern, that's but uh, some of those listening might be, you know, like in terms of ride or die. Yeah, <laughs> like, ride or die. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the context that I've that my friend proposed it to is like, oh, if you found out that I, I this is to my wife, like, hey, if you found out right. that I murdered someone, I was like, hey, there's a body in the trunk. Are you go right. to the police or help me get rid of this? Like, right. you know what I mean? Like, what, right. like, where are you as a couple? And Martha's they were clearly like, ride the or die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Martha, 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 I got yeah. a shovel, George. It's fine. We got this taken care of. 
<laughs> I got the I shovel. Like, I've got seventeen thousand acres to bury it on. No one's gonna know. Yeah. It's fine. Like it's, it's just. Yeah. She's like, I'll get a, I'll get a person to get the shovel. Probably yeah. more likely. <laughs> Let's be honest. That's probably yeah. true. And this is yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair point. <laughs> Very good point there. But um, yeah, that's that's super interesting that they ended up being each other's support mm-hmm. systems in that in a way that we'll never really understand no. um, thoroughly no. because of the lack of their correspondence. Right. Which I think which which speaks to why we don't have the correspondence possibly. You know. That's private. Right. We don't want that to survive. It's not co- uncommon in the 18th century for private correspondence to disappear after a spouse is dead. So, um, yeah. but yeah. yeah. As a historian, that that's painful. But mm-hmm. I understand as a human being yeah. that I understand why they did it. And I can't say I wouldn't do the same thing. I don't want my text messages found after I'm dead <laughs> to my <laughs> wife. I don't want that to happen. Thank you very much. I'd prefer Plus that. Facebook, yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, gosh. No, they're, they're Looking at the ones yeah. from 10 years ago are horrifying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, if only George Washington had had Facebook. So one one quick thing I was going to ask is, I know you, this is different than the time period mm-hmm. that you're focusing on, but do you think you'll ever um, sort of go forward and see as far as the revolution? Um, I imagine a lot of that stuff came back up mm-hmm. and he may have had new forms mm-hmm. of um, PTSD. Interactions and that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I think so. I mean, I'm 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 working my way forward into that period. Um, oh, awesome! There's definitely if you guys ever have a chance to look it up, look up his memoirs from 1786, 87. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy, uh, um, one of his officers in the revolution, is writing um, kind of like a biography sort of. Is this David Humphrey? This is Humphrey. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And edited and, by podcast guest Rosemary Zagari, if I'm yes. remembering correctly. Yes. Okay. <laughs> plug, plug for <laughs> anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody? Anyone? We, we interviewed her in another episode. Oh, that's so, perfect. So that's a, yeah, yeah. So Shout yeah. out to, uh, Rosie edited that, that biography, uh, that memoir. <laughs> Shout out to Rosie. Yeah. Um, so check it out. Um, great work, by the way. Um, on both parts, GW and then the editing. Phenomenal job. Um, <laughs> so, but like that, those memoirs, you know, when, when Humphrey is basically like, you know, paraphrasing, hey, write, write to me some of your experiences when you're younger and Washington is going to correct them. And tell me about the war and Washington doesn't write about the revolution. He just mm-hmm. pretty much solely writes about the times he almost died in the Seven Years' War. And some of which he never references in the war. So the one of the examples is he talks about this friendly fire incident that happens um, in the Forbes campaign in 1758. He in the eighteen in, in the seventeen fifties and the sixties and the seventies never references his involvement in that conflict. Mm-hmm. Never once. There's a question in in the the Humphreys. He he kind of implies that he was going to support someone else in the conflict. Got involved in this that and the other. But in the period, there's some indication that it may have been a partial responsibility on both sides. That Washington was caught off guard by what happened. And there's, there's, there's a murkiness there, but it's fascinating that this is one of the four times he says his life was most in danger was at that moment. And he'd never spoken about it previously, not in his official documents. Just, he says, yeah, there's, there's this small skirmish happened and that's literally all he says. Um, and it's so clearly that event stuck with him for 40 years and he brings it up well, well later. And the other event he mentions, there's an ambush he rides through in 56, they're going one direction down a road and there's a, a, a group of, of French and their, and their allies that are there. And he and his companions ride one way, probably not in uniform because there's only three of them and they're in a very dangerous area in Augusta County in Virginia. They're going one direction. And then three or four guys going the other way, like two hours later, get ambushed and killed instead. And oh, they, find, they end up catching these guys and finding out this information later he never references in the in the period, never once talks about it, never describes it until 40 years later. So you start seeing this, this interesting look back on not the revolution, but the seven years war. You know, the the quote he uses about Braddock's defeat is that on the, the road afterwards, he's riding through a, basically 40 miles of, of forest to warn the second half of the army of the horrible destruction that had happened. And he describes that the cries of the wounded who had been lost in the woods, who most of whom die of you know exposure and starvation and stuff, um, the cries of the, and lamentations of the wounded um, were enough to have pierced the heart of adamant. Um, and he rides through forty miles of this, and he's talking about like it's the, the, it's so dark at night that they're they're off their horses trying to because they're afraid they're going to lose the road and they can't get back, and they've got you know twelve hundred men waiting for them that they're trying to get ahead of before because as far as they know the French army's moving to attack them too, and it's just it shows later in his life that he's still thinking about these things that happened 
20, 30, 40 years earlier. Um, so as I move into that period, I'm really interested to see what, what comes out and what starts showing up. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Well, yeah. exciting, excited for you to move forward into that, into that spot and, 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 you know, hear more of your interpretations. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be good. Head around more content. Yeah. Um, so if, if, um, we're coming up to, uh, the hour mark here, um, Actually, here's another question. Do you have any plans for outside of the program that you did? Mm -hmm. uh, plans for this this research? Are you are you planning to? Yeah, you know, what, are you, yeah. Um, I, eventually, I you know, and this is obviously after lots of involvement and lots of heavy research and development and talking to wonderful people like Lynn, obviously, and others um, in the future, if she's willing. Um, it'd be, I think, it, I think this stuff would be great to put into some sort of format. I, I don't know what that is, whether it be, you know, an article, whether it be a book, whether it be fill in the blank. Um, you know, Something so of course, paper. sky's the yeah. limit. I would love to do that. You know, whether or not I'll ever actually be able to, who, who knows? Time will tell. Maybe write a song um, about it. Write a song you know, about it. Just some, you know, just something. It'd be great. You guys could use it. <laughs> you guys could use it as the outro for your product. No, don't do that. Um, so uh, yeah, maybe just be me with. I hope a, you can sing. Me with an out of tune guitar, just like plunking away. GW, it'd be bad. Um, so yeah, so I, I hope so. You know, and the, and the research is ongoing. You know, there's. There aren't many books about his young life or even articles about it no, that not. look through things. And it's such an Very untapped true. period. And we there's, need that. But there's so much there. Like that was the thing that surprised me when I started getting into this, you know, years ago when I started looking at Washington is I kept hearing, oh, there's not much about his young life. We just don't know very much. He was ambitious. He was young. He was an idiot. That's basically all I heard. And then I start reading this stuff and I'm like, what do you mean there's nothing about him? We literally have probably, there's six volumes just of the war mm -hmm. period of his letters. I'm like, how is that? How do you, and, and diary from you know, the from Barbados, there's diaries mm -hmm. from, how, how do you say we don't have information? And that, that there's literally 10, not tens, but thousands of, e of, of emails. <laughs> <laughs> of emails, thousands of emails of George, of George right? Time. He was a very, very progressive in his time period. Thank, um, there's, thank but there's goodness there. we have his Hotmail account. I, I know, right? Yeah. It's, it's the, <laughs> his the MySpace. Pa the password is GW forever. It's really weird. Um, but anyway, um, but th there, it's all there. So yeah, so it's untapped. So I'm hoping, you know, to keep developing that at some point. Programming, you know, online stuff. I don't know. Um, this is a great start. You got the, the thing you guys did with the, you know, with your documentary, I think it's a fantastic beginning for that for sure. Um, to look at that yeah, humanity, the humanity of Washington, that. right, right. Yes. Um, so I think there's, I think there's lots of ground for looking at Washington as a young person and the humanity of who he was, which is what you guys, had, you know, we were doing our pro when you were doing your project. Mm -hmm. That's what you kept talking about the importance yeah. of that. Um, and so I'm hoping, you know, you know, not just me, but other people, y'all and others who start delving into these things. Like someone, someone go out there and do a film about Washington, the, or like a miniseries about Washington, the, the the war years from 1754 to 1758, and that's all you do. Like that be, you know, that kind of stuff. There's so many things the out drama, there. Drama, yeah. Oh yeah, I yeah. got, I got a, um, I got, I have to. I'll tell you what the title of it off the, when we're not recording, but I okay. have a, a, a something I need to send you. It sounds good. <laughs> a, scri a, a script, not not of mine, a script that exists out in the world. Okay, gotcha. Uh, but but, but I'll, I'll shoot it over to you. I look forward I'm to not it. Supposed to I'm not supposed to have it. But when you mean the thing that you don't have. It's fine. It's, it's all hypothetical right now, clearly. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so <laughs> before we do get too off the rails, uh, for our audience right. that would love to see see you, contact you, find you anywhere, do you have any like place where they can find you online? Do you, have, you do social media? Or what, what, uh, yeah. What kind of um, presence so you do you have? You can find me on Facebook, obviously. Um, if, mm -hmm. uh, if you have any curiosity i'm working on putting together a website um in the future it'll be right. it'll be dan currently it's it's a vocal thing um for i did some voice work and stuff so it, it's uh it, it will be dan cross voices in some capacity d-a-n-c-r-o-s-s voices whatever and um, that's the the gmail email too if you want to send something to that um dan cross voices at gmail.com um don't spam me please um, <laughs> uh, he likes and, memes. and eventually I'll put a, I'll put a Washington email together at some point in time in the future. I said, I'm just not there yet, but eventually I will be. Sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I'm around, shoot me out and, and look, look up stuff. You know, I, this, I always use this opportunity. If you're interested in history, go look at websites, you know, go look at museums, go to Fort Ligonier up yes. in Pennsylvania, go to Mount Vernon, go to Colonial Williamsburg, um, go to, um, you, the, the American Revolution Museum in Philadelphia. Go to Fort Necessity. Go to the National Park Service. You know, go up to, mm -hmm. um, go up to uh, to Pitt to um, to Pitt to Pittsburgh. Go to Braddock, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. To the Braddock. Um, they have it's part of Fort Ligonier. They have the Braddock. Uh, what's the name of it? The Braddock Museum up there. Um, you know, mm -hmm. the Fort Pitt's Museum in in downtown Pittsburgh at, at the point is fantastic. Just go go find places. You know, Fort Ashby exists. One of the little string of forts in the defense of the the, the French and Indian War. It's still there. You know, the site of Fort Edwards. There's so 
many things you can go check out, not just from our own period, but other periods. Um, and if you want to look at Washington's letters and you don't have money to drop on um, the official documents and papers, go to <laughs> yeah, Founders Archives. <laughs> you know, go to Founders Archives. It's the National Archives. Yeah. 90, most of his letters are there transcribed. You can read them. You can search by name, by date, by by stuff. Don't take our word for it. Go look it up yourself, you know, um, and uh, and dive into this stuff. There's so much you can do. Yeah. I, I've said this on the podcast before, but but odds are, if you're listening to this, you live within an hour of something really cool historically, yeah. like a yes. really cool historical site, a really small historical house that has awesome stuff for you yeah. to check out. Um, it just takes the effort to get out there uh, and check out, see what's around you. But there, there's a ton of stuff them. available. Yeah, yes. so they they and, need your support. Go see them. Yeah, learn. Yeah, and if you if you did enjoy this conversation, and, and by the way, you can cut this part out, Pat, if you want to. Um, <laughs> you know, and you're in the Virginia area, go to Colonial Williamsburg for no reason in particular. <laughs> 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 thank you so much, Dan. For no, you're us. welcome, and really. thank, thank you to Dan. your lovely audience. Go check out the, uh, the the product when it comes together, the the film, and uh, I hope to see you all around at some point. I may not remember you though; I'll be in a different time. So, fair warning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media. Produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins. Edited and mixed by Curtis Fritsch. Opening theme music by Sheena Biratello.